Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my partner in party crashing, Dan Larison, as we look for opportunities to pop some balloons and spill the holy wine of Washington status quo, national security, and foreign policy. This week, we'll be talking with Suzanne Loftus, author of the upcoming book, Russia, China, and the West in the Post-War Cold War Era, The Limits of Liberal Universalism. But first, I really, really want to burst a bubble that is crowding into the room today, and that's the renewed interest in regime change in Iran. The Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a super neoconservative group that never saw a national security situation that it did not call for aggressive warmongering in response to, has come up with what can only be called a plan for regime change in Iran. Citing Iran's crackdown on protesters, its enrichment of nuclear materials, transfer of weapons to Russia, selling oil to China, its arsenal of ballistic missiles, and so-called terrorist activities abroad, FDD says enough is enough and recommends a serious laundry list of punishments, including U.S. law enforcement, doubling the sanctions regime, pressuring international crackdowns, and bolstering the protest movements directly. What is so hard for me to swallow here is that none of these actions seem to have worked in the last 20 years, yet here we are again being told by FDD that more aggressive behavior towards Iran together will somehow yield the regime change that they have been seeking all along. I guess it would be even unnecessary to talk about if it if it weren't such a risk of war breaking out between Israel and Iran and even the U.S., in Iran today. With the Iranian regime on the razor's edge trying to contain the protests and keep the economy from going into an economic spiral, it could really end up laying waste to demonstrators if provoked, especially if they feel the U.S. are behind these protests, which is what the FDD wants to do. Or they may lash out externally. Who knows? But it seems to me that FDD is acting like a spark in a gas can, Dan, what do you think of all this? Well, I mean, they certainly want to be that spark. They've, they've been trying, they've been angling for trying to destabilize and bring down the Iranian government for a long time. Uh, it's worth remembering that this is the same group that was one of the driving forces behind Trump's maximum pressure campaign. Uh, they were also the architects of the so-called sanctions wall that was designed to keep the sanctions in place no matter what Biden wanted to do. Uh, Biden hasn't really struggled very much against that sanctions wall. But they, they built it as a way of constraining his ability to re-enter the nuclear deal and to, to try to lift some of the sanctions that Trump had put in place. Uh, almost everything that was wrong with Trump's Iran policy has their fingerprints on it. Uh, so it's, it's really crazy for anybody to, to listen to what they have to say now when that policy failed so badly. Uh, of course, they bill it as a, a new and comprehensive strategy on Iran. But as, as you were saying, it's the same old bankrupt stuff that they've been pushing uh, for a long time. And it's, and it's always the same laundry list of demands, uh, more sanctions, uh, more extensive demands on Iran, uh, and, and ultimately seeking to, to bring down the government itself. Um, and I mean, the, the problem with, with the FTD's proposal, or the, the, the reason why we're talking about it, is not that it actually merits serious discussion, because the, the ideas are, are junk. I think we, we all agree with that. But FDD is taken very seriously in Washington. It has a lot of influence. Uh, it has a lot of big names attached to it, and it has a lot of politicians who, who will listen to what they have to say. And they, there are a lot of journalists that will go to them to get quotes about Iran policy and Iran-related things 
And so there, there's almost always somebody from FDD chiming in, you know, practically every story, whether it's about the nuclear program or the protests or, or anything related uh, to that part of the world. And so the, the, the danger here is that these are really terrible ideas that we can expect will circulate and will gain support in Washington. And, um, conditions are, are already dangerous enough without these sorts of terrible ideas taking hold. Uh, we just saw this week uh, Israel and the U.S. are engaged in massive military exercises, uh, reportedly the biggest exercises that they've ever done together. Uh, and the the not-so-subtle hint is that it, these exercises are meant as a threat against Iran. And so there is, there is, I think, legitimate concern that some of these terrible ideas could end up being put into practice, whether by the current administration uh, or the next one. Um it's uh, anyway, the, the the larger goal that they have of regime collapse. I think is very dangerous because if regime collapse were to happen, it would be it would actually be very bad for the U.S. and for the region. It would have huge destabilizing effects. Uh, even if it didn't create a civil war, you could expect uh, turmoil that would be consuming one of the largest countries in the region to have ripple effects in all the neighboring countries, and that would end up uh, luring the U.S. into new conflicts, creating new problems for us especially as long as we have so many tens of thousands of troops in the region. Um, I, I don't think that a regime thing plan would actually work in Iran. Uh, we've, we've already seen the U.S. trying something like that in Venezuela by using economic pressure to try to force a government out of power and to install a new leadership in its place. Uh, of course, in Venezuela, that completely backfired. Maduro is now in, in a stronger position than he was. The opposition is more fractured than ever before, and uh, there's there's much less regional support for a change in government in Venezuela than there was. And I think an attempt to try to force out the current Iranian government would have the same uh, bad effects. And so it's, it's really a, a wasted effort, and would end up creating new tensions, new hostility between us and the Iranians at a time when we need to be finding a way to dial down those tensions and and extricate ourselves from the Middle East as much as possible. Uh, unfortunately, Biden hasn't done that, and I don't see anybody else being very interested in, in doing it uh, on the other side of the aisle. Um, the, the, the main point for me is that Iran's future is not for us to decide. It's not for the U.S. to decide. We shouldn't be in the business of regime change. Uh, if we haven't already learned that after the last 20 years, it's, it's time to start learning it. Um, if the Iranian people wanted to change their government, that's their right and their decision. Uh, but we should stay out of it. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. And I also agree that FDD is a insidious group in that it is not fringe, even though their ideas to me are radical. They're, they're, they're extreme neoconservative warmongering, uh, approaches to U.S. foreign policy. And they always have been, but yet they are closer to the center of the Washington establishment than most of the groups that have been trying to pursue peace and restraint in U.S. foreign policy. So I'm looking at their roster of advisors, not their staff, but the people who have signed their names to the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. And you have people like Senator, former Senator Kelly Ayotte, who is very close to the defense industry. Um, you have, uh, uh, David Kilcullen, who was a leader of the counterinsurgency movement back during, you know, the, the Iraq war. Um, 
you have H.R. McMaster, former yeah. general, and he, was he the chief of staff? He was, not, he was national security advisor under Trump. National security advisor under Trump. Yeah, I he mean, was, so, he was basically yeah, he was basically funneling FDD ideas into the Trump White House even then. And then, of course, then after he left government, he went and joined them. Uh, you know, in a nice little uh, revolving door action. Oh there. yeah. Nadia Shadlow, we've talked about on this show before, um, who has was a part of, you know, um, the Smith Richardson Foundation, which uh, funneled um, enormous amounts of money into the Iraq War project uh, through neoconservative channels during that period. Um, now she she seems to to, to try. She, she her her aim now is to to hold the mantle for conservative realist foreign policy um, and missing the mark completely. Um, Leon Panetta. Uh, who's been like a perennial Washington uh, courtier and, and bureaucrat. So these aren't people who are on, you know, like who are in the shadows of the, of the extremities of, of the U S foreign policy world. These are people who are at the center. Um, Eric Edelman, another one who's a, a, a notorious Washington courtier. Um, and so their ideas, like you said, are are getting through not only into the you know um, the, the Capitol Hill policy world. You see you see these people testifying on on these matters on the Hill all the time, but in the media they're constantly being quoted as experts. And just to to um, to, to extend the conversation on the military drills that are occurring, I saw the stories uh, this morning about that, and I found them very egregious. Because for one, none of the the stories, the reporters who um, wrote the pieces about the Israeli slash U.S. military exercises in the Mediterranean, even questioned the timing or the virtue uh, of, of these exercises, they quote the unnamed CENTCOM officials verbatim saying things like, this is the most significant exercise between the United States and Israel to date. Um, and what we think this ex- exercise demonstrates is that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So basically, this is a signal to the rest of the world that the empire is all and well, no, we might seem like we're bogged down in matters in Eastern Europe right now, but we got to show our partners and adversaries, namely Iran, in the Middle East, that we still have extraordinary military strength and power and influence. And here's our partner, Israel, and we're going to show Iran not to not to misbehave because we're going to be right there, um, and you know we can scramble. All of these jets and all of, all of these weapon systems at a moment's notice if they if, if if they get out of line, and to a person or to a story, the CENTCOM you know uh, source was quoted with 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 no you know no you know um, interest in finding any alternative view. Let's just say, and. Why in, in this in this in this desire to make um, Israel 
feel safe and, 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 and make Israel comforted with the notion that we will always be there. When we're in the midst of a serious crisis in Ukraine right now, in which Israel is doing squat to help, but we've got to marshal billions of dollars worth of military hardware just to make Israel, um, you know, feel, feel that we got its back. And I hate this. Right. Well, and, and it is, it's pretty ridiculous, especially when you consider that Israel is both in conventional and nuclear terms far more powerful than Iran uh, could hope to be. Uh, they, they're they're perfectly secure. They they have nothing to worry about really. I mean, they might have to worry about a few rocket attacks now and then, but they really don't have a serious threat that they can't deal with themselves already. Uh, we 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 don't need to be reassuring them. Right. What what we what we need to be we need to be if anything we need to be reining them in. <laughs> Uh, and well, reining ourselves in, keeping ourselves under control, because what we're talking about, and, and this is the, the part uh, in the reporting that I found the most troubling, what everyone's talking about with these military exercises as, as sort of a dry run or as, as, a, as a warning to Iran, is that we're essentially threatening to attack them out of the blue uh, in, in an act of, of criminal aggression, because that's what it would be if we were to suddenly attack Iran's nuclear facilities because we think they might pose a threat someday in the future, that that's criminal aggression. It's it's no different than what Russia has done to Ukraine, no different than what we did to Iraq, uh, and and it ne- it almost never gets framed that way. It's almost never understood in those terms because it, it's always cast as you know, we're responding to their menacing right. threat, which doesn't exist yet. They don't have nuclear weapons. The the FDD strategy refers to disarmament demands. There's nothing to disarm. Yeah, they well, they want to disarm them weapons. completely. Right, and and so it's just, it's just maddening because up is down in this debate, where the the would be potential aggressors who are talking about every day, practically talking about attacking Iran, are cast as somehow acting defensively, and the Iranians who might possibly one day build a deterrent. Are cast as yeah. uh, the 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 crazy irrational fanatics, and it it makes war more likely because it makes it seem like our aggressive actions are somehow warranted when they're not. Yeah, and and it's it's the same kind of build up before every bad intervention that we've seen in our lifetimes, and I I'm I hope that when Biden has talked about using military action, that he was just engaging in boilerplate and he didn't mean it, because. It, if he follows through on what he has said and the nuclear deal collapses, we could be looking at war in the next year or two, and uh, that would be a disaster for everybody. like to welcome to the show Suzanne Loftus. Suzanne is a new fellow at Quincy's Eurasia program and she comes to us from the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies and she is also the author of the forthcoming book China and the West in the Post-Cold War Era, The Limits of Liberal Universalism. Welcome to the show Suzanne. Thanks for having me Kelly. Um, So uh I'm really glad you're on the show today, and um, you, we are colleagues together, and I'm really happy about that um, because uh, you got some excellent expertise and experience in in this field, and uh, Lord knows we need it right now. 
Um, you wrote an excellent piece for us at Responsible Statecraft, and you talked a little bit about um, the establishment debate right now of what the Biden administration should be doing. And you sort of centered on a couple different op-eds that have been out there. One of them was by Condoleezza Rice and Bob Gates, which seemed to perpetuate this notion that we should give Ukraine whatever it needs right now, um, escalate so we can end this war, that Ukraine can win and, and we end the war sooner. And then another piece by uh, Evo Dalder and is it James Goldgeier? who talked more about um, not escalating with advanced weapons, uh, but they seem to believe in, in, and please forgive me for not, you know, accurately conveying this, that um, a prolonged or protracted war would be more in Ukraine's favor. And you come down on the opinion, like neither of those approaches um are are good and will will end up, um, you know, destroying Ukraine in in the process. Could you talk a little bit about those competing approaches and why there is a third way <laughs> in this? <laughs> yeah, sure, of course. So Condoleezza Rice and Bob Gates, as well as uh, I would say a big majority of policy analysts are currently talking about how we need to end the war faster by sending more offensive weapons. These include more tanks. These include um, longer range missiles. And the idea is to recapture all of the territory that uh, was, of course, originally part of Ukraine pre-2014 uh, before any Russian invasion occurred. Now, this may seem logical or or the best way forward because, yes, indeed, this territory does belong to Ukraine. There's just a couple of issues with uh, using that approach. When you start using offensive weapons and uh, tanks and longer range missiles and attacking Crimea to recapture it, this starts changing the entire um, dimension of the war because Crimea now for Russians and specifically for the Russian regime is a fundamental part of the Russian Federation and they are uh, adamant about defending it at all costs. There's much data that, that shows that the populations also of Russia and of Crimea are satisfied with that annexation and want to uh, defend the peninsula at all costs. So that's why it raises the stakes to try to recapture Crimea. But that's not the only issue. Of course, we're seeing constant um, fighting con continuously today and tons of lives lost and Ukrainian infrastructure being destroyed by the day. If we continue this war, we will continue the destruction of Ukraine. And that entails the Russian regime uh upping the ante and uh, continuing its destruction of Ukraine. But it could also possibly mean using tactical nuclear weapons if Crimea should be threatened. So in principle, uh, while Gates and Rice and many of the establishment advocate for this, it's, it's a very risky way to move forward. It's also very damaging to Ukraine and will cause severe life loss, even though this has already been happening by the day. Um, so Dalder and Goldgeier can see that. They see that escalating the war is not a good idea. And they acknowledge that uh, 
you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't go for, for that option. But at the same time, they also don't believe that a negotiation is at all possible because of the current stance of both sides in the war. Russia and Ukraine both have maximalist positions, understandably so for Ukraine. Um, and they say that it's inevitable that we'll have a protracted conflict and the United States should support Ukraine through that protracted conflict. Now, obviously, if there's no choice, uh, you know, of course, uh, we should always support Ukraine. But the idea should be more to try and end the war. We should try to diplomatically uh, approach both Ukraine and Russia as the United States. We have that position to be able to do so because we're the main providers of support and weapons to Ukraine. So we do actually have a role, a major role in this war and a responsibility to to see how it ends. So what I suggest really is just upping, let's say, the diplomacy game in the United States and discussing with Ukraine and Russia behind the scenes. This doesn't have to be a very outwardly public uh, discussion, but explaining the the dangers and why it's not in the interest of Ukraine, actually, to have a protracted conflict and to discuss some long-standing issues with Russia that the West and Russia have had in the last 30 years after the Cold War. So hopefully we can have more of a diplomatic uh, agreement and approach this war rather than seeing more deaths and more destruction. So this week everybody's talking about sending tanks to Ukraine, whether they be the uh, German-made Leopard tanks or the U.S. M1 Abrams tanks. Can you give us some thoughts on what that would mean, A, if the Leopard tanks were sent, and B, if the Abrams tanks were sent? Is this, this to me, seems like an escalation, but would love to hear your thoughts on on both of those issues. Sure. Well, as we saw from the the Rammstein Rammstein, uh, event uh, meeting there, we we thought that the decision was made that the Germans would not send in the Leopard tanks and would not allow for the re-export of those tanks by other NATO allies to Ukraine. And we also heard them say that they would do so if the United States agreed to send in the Abram tanks. So there is a political and an economic dimension to, to these discussions. One is that Germany... Uh, having a, its uh, specific history in, in world affairs has taken on a stance or, that is rather pacifist and um, politically averse to to war and uh, and supporting war in any shape or form. But it has, of course, broken with this recently, and it's been helping Ukraine throughout this process. But the allies, the rest of the alliance, is saying not enough. And there's been a lot of controversy over them not sending in these leopard tanks. But uh, the United States may or may not end up sending its Abram tanks. And if it does, then Germany can go forward with allowing the re-export and sending those in. So yes, as you said, it would mark a significant escalation in the war because these tanks are are for offensive purposes and are there for trying to regain the rest of the territory back, which obviously is in their right. No one is arguing about that. It's just that the consequences of escalation are severe and there will be a lot of destruction, a lot of life loss. 
and also not necessarily politically being able to govern certain territories that haven't been under Ukrainian control in the last eight years. It's going to be very difficult for Ukraine to be able to reintegrate Crimea and uh, some of these enclaves in the Donbass that haven't been under Ukrainian control in the last eight years. So at this point, it's what are we going on the offensive for, really, to struggle to politically govern some areas that were were not governed by Ukraine in the last eight years. I don't know if all that that uh, death and destruction is is really worth that final push, um, especially if it's going to cause perhaps some, you know, horrible escalation that we're all trying to avoid, including the use of tactical nukes. And the M1s, I mean, that would be even more significant than just the, sending the leopards in. Well, in in that in this case, yes, because it shows that there's uh, a unified response between the allies that this is the way forward and yeah. this is the way that they want to end the war, and and they'd all be sending in tanks. And that's the thing is, you need a certain amount of them for it to have a difference on the battlefield. So the more you send in, the more it shows the resolve. Mm-hmm. And if they all go in, then there will be a significant response from Russia, naturally. Right, because this is this does indicate that NATO is foursquare involved in in this conflict. There there shouldn't be any question at this point that this isn't um, a proxy war at a certain level um, if we continue to cross lines that we had set in terms of our escalatory, you know, approach. Yeah, well... We're, we've always been involved yeah. somehow, even though we're not boots on the ground or anything like that. Without the United States, there would be no war. The war would have ended very quickly, let's put it that way. Uh, so, you know, of course, U.S. support meant the world to Ukraine and fundamentally helped it in its uh, efforts to defend itself against Russia. Um, but sending those in, yeah, that would show that we are in essence, there to, quote unquote, win, whatever that means, even though we have not really thought through the consequences of this so-called winning. Certainly, I don't think there's been much thought given to what comes next or or where this is going uh, in Washington. Uh, Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, Looking at a somewhat uh, bigger picture, uh, you, you have a book coming out in the spring, I believe, in April. Uh, and in your forthcoming book, you study the causes of the deterioration in relations between Russia and the West uh, going back uh, prior to the Ukraine crisis, prior to the outbreak of the war. Uh, what do you see as the principal causes of that deterioration? Well, thanks for your question, Dan. Uh, yes, yeah, so the book is generally speaking about great power relations after the end of the of the Cold War. So I talk about China, I talk about Russia, I talk about the West uh, as a collective entity, and um, the dynamics and the evolutions of those relationships. So in the case of Russian-Western relations, there were many significant moments that um, contributed to the worsening of relations. So at first there was this, uh, hope, let's put it that way, that, that Russia and the West would collaborate and work together from the perspective of the West. That meant that Russia would become a liberal democracy. From the perspective of Russia, that meant that the two would work as equal partners in a new security architecture in Europe, uh, to face future challenges. 
So really the issues actually stem from that fundamental misunderstanding of the place that Russia would have in the new world order. Russia thought it would be equal to the West. The West basically uh, expected it to be a junior partner. And this was made rather clear uh, throughout the last 30 years uh, in the sense that Russia's opinion uh, didn't quite matter for for the shaping of of the European security architecture. And by that, I mean mostly NATO enlargement and the issue of the indivisibility of security. So NATO enlargement, you know, every country has the right to apply for membership and then the allies can or or may or may or may not accept said country into the alliance. The indivisibility of security when it comes to uh, the Helsinki Final Act of 1975 and uh, the OSCE and the Paris Agreements, um, the Russian perception of that of those words means that every country in Europe is entitled to its security, but not when whatever it does is at the expense of another country's security. So for Russia, that meant NATO enlargement to the east, not expanding the alliance so that it comes um, close to its borders. And that's not just a question of being afraid that NATO is going to attack Russia. It really changes the strategic stability and the strategic uh, ability of Russia to respond to any type of aggression should it happen. So if you put foreign bases next to Russia, if you put, if you place uh, strategic nuclear weapons in these newly identified NATO member states, it essentially reduces the response time. So in the event of a war, Russia would be at a disadvantage. So it had issues with that. And it, and uh, NATO enlargement, you know, was not done considering what Russia felt or thought about certain countries entering the alliance. So for Russia, that meant basically taking a second step or a second position to the West in major European security decisions. So that was one thing. But then there was also other issues such as Russia's perception that the West was involved in all the color revolutions around its borders. And what that means is that they had the feeling that the West was financing or through its soft power, just instigating revolutions around its borders to create instability and to promote democracy all around Russia. And that's not to say that Russia is afraid of democracy. It's more that it views this type of action as a, a U.S.-backed way to global domination, basically, just trying to make countries around Russia and around the world be like the United States or be like Western countries. And for, for Russia, that was, it's quite a unilateral approach to global affairs, which uh, it always um, protested and thought was not the way that we should govern the world. Right now we see Russia and China favoring more of a multipolar type of world order where there are different power centers and more pragmatic relations, less ideological less about liberalism, less about democracy and regime type, and more about sovereignty and 
national interests. Um, and some major issues, for example, the Iraq war was a major point when Russia and the United States had a severe disagreement in, in those actions. Um, and then the intervention in Libya, though Russia actually stayed out of the vote and abstained the, the fact that the mission experienced what we call mission creep in the end, they saw as a, as a kind of a backstab because they, they agreed to stay out of the vote, but not to the extent that there would be regime change in a failed state thereafter. So then when Putin came back to power in 2012, you could see the major shift in the way he started to, you know, treat the West and have relations with the West. It was very much, uh, more on the defensive and he even applied those policies inside Russia to try to, according to him, protect Russia from the advances of Western uh, attempts to change the regime. Yeah, well, I remember uh, with the Libyan war, uh, that that was really sort of the, the death knell of the reset that existed at that time. Uh, and, and that, together with the Magnitsky Act, was sort of the one-two punch that kind of killed U.S.-Russia relationship uh, going forward. Yes. Um, you, you were you were talking about you were mentioning multipolarity or the the, the world moving towards multipolarity uh, as as something that the Russians and Chinese uh, would like to see, uh, and, and the, the world has been gradually moving in that direction. How should the U.S. adapt its foreign policy to better navigate a world that is moving towards multipolarity? Uh, what old assumptions and habits should Washington give up? <laughs> well, that's a very important question because we need to figure out what the future is going to look like. As you correctly said, whether we like it or not, the world is moving towards multipolarity. You can see China um, quickly approaching the United States economically, um, militarily also, and Russia currently facing some military setbacks is nevertheless uh, still an important player in the world because of its nuclear arsenal and also because it's the largest country in the world and has vast natural resources. India is growing. Brazil is growing. These power centers are shifting. The United States can't dictate the ways of the road because others don't have to follow suit. You can see already the BRICS nations are getting together to form uh, their own trade policies, and they've all agreed to start trading in their own currencies instead of in the U.S. dollar. So while it has not completely changed so far, that's the goal, is to have all those transactions be in different currencies. So really, the United States should approach international politics with more pragmatism and less idealism and see that you know other nations are not uh, liberal democracies necessarily and may have other priorities and may wish to um, to have important power relations or just relationships with other powers that may affect the global balance of power, such as the you know Russia-China relationship now, which is gaining in major importance and is in essence balancing the power of the United States in the world. So instead of trying to stop that and instead of trying to contain every rising power or uh, build up its defenses all over the world, it could also take the approach of uh, 
of, um, of, of not being provocative in that sense, because the more you build up your military in certain parts of the world, the more the local power will see that as a threat and will respond in kind and build up its military forces around the area. And then what do you have is a hyper militarized zone with lots of American forces and lots of, let's say, Chinese forces in the Indo-Pacific, for example. And that's more likely to lead to an accident, to escalation, to, um, let's say, a major war in Taiwan, because the Chinese might view American influence in Taiwan as growing, and they might believe there that uh, Taiwan is uh, is now being threatened to to um, be more under, let's say, Western influence than than Chinese influence, and this might start some some issues, very much like it did in Ukraine. I mean, this whole war um, started because of that, because there was a, a disagreement between how much the West could influence a country right next to Russia and how how much Russia would have to accept that it had no more influence left in such an area. So we can have pragmatic and pluralist agreements, is how I put it in my book, especially in areas uh, of contest, uh, contested areas where multiple powers have interests in those areas. You can find shared agreements on how to approach that zone. And that, that uh, includes um, fair and shared uh, different trade relationships, also uh, not attempting to militarily dominate any of those contested regions and having a far more diplomacy between the major powers to avoid escalation and understanding each other's major interests. So that's the only way to avoid war, I would say, even though it's not really ideal. Do we have time for one more question? Because I know, Dan, you wanted to ask another one, and I'd, I'd uh, well, I, make sure you If have... she has time, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, just quickly, uh, your previous book was about why Putin was able to retain so much support inside Russia, despite the country's economic problems. Based on what you have found in your research, do you expect him to face a domestic backlash over the costs of the war in Ukraine at some point, or will he be buoyed by wartime nationalism? That's a very good question, because there's a fine line, right? I mean, the annexation of Crimea was highly popular, but at the same time, there was no life lost, uh, especially no, um, there was no Russian troops uh, who lost their lives in annexing the territory of Crimea. There were, however, Russian lives lost in eastern Ukraine. There was a war there as well, and uh, half of those casualties of the half of the 14,000 casualties took place on, oh no, that's not true. Not half. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe 500 to a thousand actually only took place on the Russian side. The rest were between the Ukrainian government and the rebel forces that were supported by Russia. But nevertheless, there were, there was life uh, lost. And despite that, there was still major support for the war. But now in this current war, the the numbers are just exponentially large and i think that anyone or any population would get nervous about that but it's true that the narrative works in russia the putin's narrative about why the war started which is highly you know critical of the west you know it's nato enlargement nato encroachment um but also 
you know, about Ukrainian domestic situation that, you know, there's Nazis, but what that can be translated to is that there's a hyper nationalist government in Ukraine that is very anti-Russian. And for, for the Russians, that's unacceptable. And this narrative is quite popular and he still retains the support of the population despite all those uh, lives lost. Now that's for now. The war has only been going on about a year. If it goes on much longer and if there's more, um, you know, losses on the Russian side, this might start to, to change. Um, however, I would say that the longer this goes on, the longer Russia is isolated, you know, through the sanctions regime, the longer that there is the space available in Russia to create this anti-Western narrative. So while they may be upset at the, the, the losses they're experiencing, they're more upset at the West because they blame the West more than they do their current regime. So I would say that he would continue to retain that support for now and that his power is currently not threatened. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. I just want to reiterate your book is coming out in April and it can be reordered, pre-ordered rather on amazon.com right now. And the name of that book, Russia, China and the West in the post-Cold War era, The Limits of Liberal Universalism. I am so excited for you. Congratulations. You. And we hope to have you on again. I hope to be on again, too. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.